Hey friends, this is a show I've been calling Plain Spoke and I do a lot of different segments. Um, one of them, I've been going through the Transitional Book of Doctrines and Discipline. Actually, I've only done one segment before I went through the doctrinal standards uh, because that's what's required in order for people to vote on joining the Global Methodist Church. They have to stay, say that they agree with the doctrinal standards and the social witness. And so this is gonna be part two of a several part series walking through the uh, transitional book of doctrines and discipline. And uh, uh, today I'm, I'm joined by my brother, Daniel Rickman. He's gonna help me go through the social witness of the church. And so we're gonna uh, spend some time uh, going through uh, several slides that I put together. It's only two pages whenever you read the transitional book of doctrines and discipline, but um, it has a lot of scriptural citations. So we're gonna talk through the scriptures and how much they support the, um, the, the, the stances that the Global Methodist Church is taking. And then um, we'll, we'll hopefully encourage you along the way to, to be more scripturally um, aware and, and literate and to connect what you read in the Bible to modern day issues. Uh, Daniel and I both spent a, a little bit of time reviewing this stuff, but we haven't reflected upon it as deeply as we should. So we're gonna be doing some reflecting in this time. I'd invite you to be in a reflective spirit as well. And then um, whether you're already in the Global Methodist Church and you're wanting to know more about what it stands for or you're thinking about joining it, uh, the intent here really is to build up the church, have uh, uh, people actually know what different groups stand for. I came out of the United Methodist Church where people were of the mind that you could believe anything and be a Methodist. And that's really not what the Global Methodist Church is, is going for. So what are the essential beliefs practices, social stances, that's what um, we're gonna be covering in this series. So I'd invite you, if you haven't already, to subscribe, um, whether you're on uh, YouTube or Facebook or some other uh, podcast medium, and then uh, just be along with me for the ride. All right, um, I'm gonna introduce you to my brother. This is my brother, Daniel. And uh, Daniel, you're preaching at Blackwell and Brayman. Um, as we talk through this, what's important for people to know about you? I have a wife named Catherine, um, and we met at Asbury Theological Seminary, and uh, where we both had a great education, and been serving now uh, in ministry for a little over three years, so I'm still kind of a newbie, and um, yeah, those are the bare basics. I, I have a bit of a history in German. That was kind of my thing before I went into ministry. I lived abroad and studied German and still like to use it occasionally, I still have friends over there, so maybe those are some of the most basic facts about me. We'll put any uh, contact information that you want for Daniel on the um, show notes to this, so if, if you're interested in his ministry, how you can support him, uh, if he gives me anything, I'll put it in the show notes. If he gives me nothing, that means he does not want to hear from you, so do not reach out. Um, all right, so what we're going to do is we're going to reach out, we're going to um, read through this presentation that I put together. You'll, if you're watching this, you'll see the same slide that we do. Um, I, I think he and I will just go back and forth and reading this stuff. We might interrupt one another if we have a thought that we wanna share that, that we might forget. We're gonna try and do this in an hour because time is valuable. However, there's a lot of content here and we don't wanna give it short shrift. So that's the dance that we're doing. So, um, uh, so that Daniel can get his sea legs, I'll, I'll read through the first one and then we'll just move forward from there. So this is, the very beginning of the social witness section, it begins. Following both 
the example and teachings of Jesus when we believe that God calls us to love and serve others around the world in his name. I, didn't, I said who we believe, but it just says we believe that God calls us to, to love and serve others around the world in his name. Since God first stirred the hearts of John and Charles Wesley to feed the hungry, visit those in prison, oppose slavery, and care for those less fortunate, Methodists have believed in meeting people at their point of need and offering them Jesus. We are convinced that faith, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. And that quote is from James 2.17, quote, so also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. And that as Jesus reminded us, when we do not do what is needed to care for the least of our sisters and brothers, we likewise have not done so for Christ either. This is what Jesus says, quote, Then he will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. All right, anything to be said about that before we move on uh, to the next section, Daniel? Nothing immediately comes to mind. Some, th- some related thoughts connected to these this next slide, but... Um... But yeah, nothing, nothing especially. I mean, they're they're naming some of the big name uh, things that that stood out about Methodism for its first one hundred years: its attention to the poor, uh, John Wesley's very vocal stance on slavery. Um, Jesus so calls us to it. The Methodist heritage is strong in it. Nothing right. to argue about there. Okay, I don't think so. All right, why don't you read this next slide for us then? <clears throat> It was in that spirit that the Methodist Episcopal Church became the first denomination in the world to adopt a formal social creed in 1908, spurred by the social gospel, in response to the deplorable working conditions of millions. Though reflective of its own time, the statement is still remarkably relevant even today, calling for, among other things, equal rights and complete justice for all men in all stations of life, principles of conciliation and arbitration in industrial dissensions, abolition of child labor, the suppression of the sweating system, a reduction of the hours of labor to the lowest practical point, a release from employment one day in seven, and for a living wage in every industry. In turn, that prophetic witness was subsequently embraced by each of the other branches of Methodism and the Evangelical United Brethren Church, and continues this day within the global Methodist Church. As a global church, our social witness represents a consensus vision transcending cultures of what it means to be faithful disciples in a world that remains in rebellion against its creator, racked by violence and unfettered greed. It is a summons to prayerfully consider how to do good and do no harm to all as we put our faith into practice. Right, so that do good and do no harm is obviously a reference to the general rules, which of course are much more detailed than that. But um, as I read it here, it's a recapitulation of the social gospel movement history in America and uh, the deplorable working conditions that were rife after during the Industrial Revolution in America. So what else is there to be said about that section? I somewhat curious, it seems like at least what they quoted there is um, primarily focused on labor law or, you know, things regarding labor, labor. Um, and what we're about to read will include some things regarding the labor, you know, various um, um, industrial realities, but it has extended far beyond that to include many other social realities. And so, 
Um, yeah, I don't know. I'm, I'm sitting here wondering how much initially some of those other things were in view early in the 20th century, or um, are, some of these other issues that we're about that to we're discuss. about to cover. Yeah. yeah, some of the other social issues, uh, or if if when the the social gospel first started, I'm just not historically aware. Was it primarily focused on labor laws, child labor, things like that? Yeah, um, yeah. It's uh, it's rare to find anyone who says no. We shouldn't have cared about deplorable working conditions. Right. So that's a that's a pretty hard, solid place to start for the church being involved in transforming society. Uh, but then the when you start looking at the ways that it spilled out into other issues, it's right to ask the question of: Did we go too far? Have we not gone far enough? You know, uh, to to what degree is it right for the church to be involved in changing policy and law for the benefit of the people around us? So we'll, we'll start looking at the individual issues. We'll turn to, um, I didn't announce it whenever I first started reading, but the social witness portion is just part two in the transitional book of doctrines and discipline, and this is paragraph 202. So we, we just got done reading paragraph 201, uh, which was the setup for now there are going to be 14 particular social witness stances that we're expected to stand by in the global Methodist church. Here's the first one. Can I ask you a question real quick? Yeah. What? Um, I'm wondering, especially knowing that, you know, your, your channel is, is kind of geared for conservatives. If some people hearing the word social gospel are going to have an immediate connotation relating to social justice mm-hmm. that, that, you know, were, were you, uh, I'm wondering if we're going to try and help hash that out, or what? What? How, how we as conservatives should should look at language like the social gospel in in um, terms of today, or is that something that we'll kind of flesh out as we go through each of these points and seeing how how this having a social stance on things mm-hmm. may or may not be related to current connotations with social justice? I think we would be remiss if we did not acknowledge the huge impact social gospel had, not just on America, but on the United Methodist Church and was part and parcel with a lot of what we wanted, I wanted to leave behind. I've uh, I've written a Substack article I'm going to publish later today that very much talks about some of that history and the way that this is all theologically connected. What, what I understand this to be is the global Methodist Church trying to have its cake and eat it too a little bit, mm. where, hey, we're not going to focus too much on this. It's only two pages long. It's not going to be the main thing that we're about, even so... We're not jettisoning social action altogether. This is not going to be only an individual working out their salvation with fear and trembling. We still need to be collaboratively working to change society as it pertains to these issues. Um, How much that is rife with social gospel Mm -hmm. is not clear to me. And we'll be seeing over the coming years... um, Hopefully it, it doesn't grow from here, but if it does, you know, to be like the if if you don't know the history, read my Substack article. But yeah, it'll probably be undergirding what we're talking about here today. Okay. So yeah. feel free to bring it up some more. Okay. All right. So this is paragraph two hundred two point one. The very first social witness is: We believe that all persons, irrespective of their station or circumstances in life, have been made in the image of God and must be treated with dignity, justice and respect. We denounce as sin, racism, sexism, and other expressions that unjustly discriminate against any person. So as proof texts, they have two, do they have two citations or three? 
oh, they have five. Mm -hmm. Okay, so here's the first two. This is Genesis 1, verses 26 and 27. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God. He created him, male and female, he created them. If you're curious, this is the English Standard Version. Um, the, the second citation is Deuteronomy 16, 19 through 20. You shall not pervert justice. You shall not show partiality. And you shall not accept a bribe, for a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and subverts the cause of the righteous. Justice and only justice you shall follow, that you may live and inherit the land that the Lord your God is giving you. So we'll have Daniel read um, the other citations, but my immediate response is kind of, okay, we need to remember justice is not a Western concept, but in the biblical concept, it's a Hebrew concept. I'm pretty sure the Hebrew word is mishpat, and it has to do, yes, with a universal notion of giving people what they deserve, but also doing that in light of the fact that God is merciful. So our justice needs to reflect God's mercy but it also needs to be harsh on the unpenitent and those who prey on, on the less, uh, less fortunate, the marginalized. I notice it talks about sin being racism and sexism and other expressions that un unjustly discriminate against any person. I think the ism terms very much mark a 20th century theology. Um, where I think it would be, if we're trying to reclaim just a biblical ethos that is not so much a reflection of our cultural values, then it would have been good to say we denounce any ideology that treats people as of inherently different worth based on inalienable characteristics. That's at least based in an earlier liberal tradition, but the, the renouncing of sexism and racism participates in a whole host of ideologies that are uh, dominant in the political sphere. So to, to my ears, this signals um, an openness to mainstream political ideologies. Uh, does it communicate the same thing to you? Oh, I'm not, depending on, uh, on what you mean, I, I don't hear like an inherent, um, like potent danger in that. I do, it did, it did strike me that they chose those two. I mean, I think we're all aware. It seems like there's quite a few terms that end with ism these days mm -hmm. that are yeah. thrown around, and so it kind of begs the question: Why not any of the other isms? Yeah, um, or phobias. Sure. Yeah. Um, and so it's fascinating. It, it, to me, it seems like a pretty clear indicator that they're actually kind of. Um, I think the GMC has started very much aware that. Uh, there, there are um, a lot of people just waiting for the GMC to like show its true colors and reveal that it's actually racist. And, you know, people oh, have been yeah. accusing it of being racist all along. Right. Um, and and likewise, you know, there's been a, a concern. Yeah, it's, just, it's a bunch of Trump voters, really, and everybody uh -huh. knows Trump is racist, and anybody who likes him is racist. Uh -huh. They want white nationalism. So they're they're actually going to have something here in a bit that deals with nationalism. Uh, but yeah, they're they're doing the messaging to counter that stereotype that's already been constructed. Yeah. Well, and to be fair, I think that already before the 
um, before the GMC became a thing. And I think even before, you know, being at Asbury, where a lot of GMC connected people are and, and were involved in, in forming the GMC, uh, they, as long as I was there, starting in 2016, and I'm sure long before that, were very vocal about things regarding racism and making mm-hmm. sure people knew that they were against r- racism. And, um, and of course, uh, also going into the GMC, people have really been watching for the GMC to reveal its true colors mm-hmm. in terms of, you know, you guys in your conservatism are inevitably going to end up being sexist. Uh, and we're going to see that at some point mm-hmm. be shown in uh, what you do with your clergy and, and the ordination of women. And, and so I think the GMC all along from like day one has been very much making, you know, whether it's in um, optics and how, what pictures they put up and everything has been showing, we're including people of all races, mm-hmm. women are in leadership. And um, so I don't know, those, it's just fascinating that I, I'm not surprised that they named those two, yeah. but it, it's, and, and it also struck me that they said that unjustly discriminate which seems to also indicate that there's such, such a thing as potential discrimination that that might not be un, unjust. Mm. I don't know. That that could be me reading into it, but but I do think it's fair to say like discriminate discriminate in kind of just its bare bare bones denotative meaning mm. uh doesn't necessarily mean something born out of prejudice or injustice. It's just, you know, discriminating between two different things. It's similar yeah. to distinguishing. Yeah. And so I wonder if they're they're seeing some sort of thing down the road of um, hey, there are some forms of discrimination that are necessary in life, or they're seeing that like we're going to be uh, accused of maybe discriminating against mm-hmm. other groups. Oh, sure, yeah, that's and smart. that we're going to say like, well, yeah, we're discriminating, but we believe that's biblical and just. Yeah, yeah. Well, when when the founder of your movement, John Wesley, is quoted uh, as saying, "I am a Bible bigot," yeah. you know, mm-hmm. then you have to be comfortable with uh, language of uh, discrimination in mm-hmm. some sense. Uh, being inclined in one direction and not another. So mm-hmm. uh, the the other thing, you know, the sin of racism, <clears throat> I don't know if you're aware of this, but in the last year, the, the United Methodist Church has really been talking very big words about we're going to end the sin of racism. Mm-hmm. And uh, meanwhile, the Global Methodist Church has just uh, publicly announced that its first general conference is not even going to be in the U.S. It's going to be in Costa Rica. Yeah, And so there's there's what you say, and then there's what you do. The United Methodist Church has still never had a, a, a general conference outside of the U.S. Really? Yeah, I the wasn't United aware Methodist Church. Oh, it's mm. always been with the rich whiteies in the West, you know. So mm. um, there's there's what you say and what you do. Yeah. Anyway, I need to get you to read the the other scriptural sure. citations here. Okay, so from Luke 11 verse 42. But woe to you Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb, and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. And then Luke 19, verse 9, And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. And then uh, lastly, Colossians chapter 3, verse 11, Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. I just found it so fascinating that they chose Colossians 3 as opposed to, what is it, I think, um, uh, Galatians, is it in chapter three where that's where you have male and female? And I thought, after having named sexism, why not use the one that includes male and female? That is interesting. I didn't think of that at all. I don't know. I'm sure they had a reason. Yeah, they were just very concerned about redeeming the Scythians. You know, yeah, right. that's a very <laughs> present issue today. Right. Yeah. yeah. What What other What other um, do Do all the scriptural citations seem to fit this point? Uh, you know, the first one from Luke eleven forty two seems to be talking about 
you know, the justice and continuing in that vein. Mm-hmm. Um, Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house since he also is a son of Abraham. That's that's a story of, uh, what's his name up in the tree? Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus comes down from the tree, I think. I don't know. I'm not I'm not sure what Luke 19.9 is, um, but I, I'm not sure how that connects. Yeah. I, I think whenever it says that um, everybody uh, must be treated with dignity, justice, and respect, Jesus showing Zacchaeus such dignity and respect, even though he was okay, hated yeah. because he's a son of Abraham. For sure. Yeah, that works. The only other thing I think I would say is just that... Um, what I wonder at as we go through here is if the social witness is going to make a distinction between the role of the church and the role of the state, or if the role of the church is to conform the state mm-hmm. to Christian values and virtues. That's something that I noticed the United Methodist Church was never really good at, was making room for the, the state to operate with different principles or different dynamics than the church. The presupposition being we need to conform them to our way of doing things, even though they are not undergirded by the gospel, which, of course, I, I would find to be problematic. But mm-hmm. anything else to be said about the first social witness before we go on to number two? No, we should probably go okay. on. Okay, yeah, let's let's go on then. Um, okay, number two. We believe that life is a holy gift of God whose beginnings and endings are set by God and that it is the particular duty of believers to protect those who may be powerless to protect themselves, including the unborn those with disabilities or serious illness, and the aged. So I actually did a, a segment with the Fugates. Did you see this? I saw the beginning. I That's finished fine. it. So me and Sarah Beth sat down with um, Nathan and Holly Fugate, who are much more active in the anti-abortion, pro-life. Yeah, I don't think they call themselves anti-abortion, but pro-life. And then, of course, as implications for end-of-life, mental, Ill- mental disability, and the unborn and they are advocating for the GMC to take a strong stand on this, and I wish I had thought to look in the Transitional Book of Doctrines and Discipline for what was said here, because it is a pretty strong statement. The uh, scriptural undergirding is Genesis 2-7, which says, Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. I think that's used by some people actually to justify abortion because... A fetus hasn't breathed yet, and so mm. breathing is what constitutes the start of a new life. Okay. Uh, I don't really like that proof text. Uh, Leviticus 19.32 says, You shall stand up before the gray head and honor the face of an old man, and you shall fear your God. I am the Lord. So that would address the aged. Jeremiah 1.5 says, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you, and before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. So the notion being that the unique call of Jeremiah is is uh, reflected in every single person. And then uh, Luke chapter 1 verses 41 through 44 has the story of Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit and she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. So, of course, the the child of Elizabeth would be John the Baptist, but he has not yet been born, and yet 
is alive and actually testifying to uh, who Christ Jesus is. And he, she's like in the third, Elizabeth's in like the third trimester and Mary's in like the first. Mm-hmm. So lest someone look at this and go, oh, he's uh, John, maybe later, maybe that's a life then, but he's responding to the life of Christ Jesus, mm-hmm. who is much earlier than him. Um, what else to be said about any of, of this content? Well, this seems like, uh, <clears throat> I think the next one is more specifically in respect to abortion. This one seems more kind of umbrella of protecting all who are powerless and in, including the aged, which I'm I'm grateful for. I don't, I don't know any statistics, but my impression is that uh, we have a real problem with um, not only with like uh, suicide with uh, el- pretty elderly uh, people, but also... Um, I mean, there's been a kind of a constant background conversation, I think, for a long time about, uh, like, I, I don't, I don't know any of the right vocabulary, but like merciful, um, medical assistance in death made, yes, and yes. it's it's becoming a huge cause of death in Canada. Right. right. And so I I I'm grateful to see that they are interested in protecting the aged as well. Right. Um, I think it's important, and of course, people with disabilities. Um, I think. I can't remember which European nation I, I read about, but they, they don't have any uh, people with Down syndrome right. yeah. in their nation, which just uh, reveals a horrible pattern. I want to say it was Greenland, actually, but I'm sure really? there's, uh, or, you know, it's one of the Nordic countries as well that has mm-hmm. almost no Downs yeah. kids. But yeah, that yeah. has huge implications. Yeah. All right. Well, then we'll, we'll see what number three leads to. You go ahead and read this one. The sacredness of all life compels us to resist the practice of abortion except in the cases of tragic conflicts of life against life when the well-being of the mother and the child are at stake. We do not accept abortion as a means of birth control or gender selection, and we call upon all Christians as disciples of the Lord of life to prayerfully consider how we can support these women facing unintended pregnancies without adequate care, counsel, or resources. Uh, You want me to go read the scriptures? Sure. So the first comes from Exodus 22, verses 22 and 23. You shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry. Then James 1, verse 27. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God and God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. And then finally, uh, Psalm 139, verses 13 through 16. For you formed my inward parts... You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. Yeah, I don't know that I, 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 I there's, I, I would suspect that people who are better educated about some of this language would want a, a stronger and more kind of thorough statement at the beginning. I think there are some phrases in there that I wonder might leave some room for, um, you know, that I think it's pretty messy. Um, ter- I mean, that what they're trying to allow for some of the really difficult circumstances that come up in, in relation to abortion, cases of tragic conflicts of life against life, um, it, it's it's a difficult kind of territory to navigate. Mm-hmm. I think, and I'm, I, and and I, I just know I've heard some pro-life people who have even taken pretty strong stances against um, 
really even using that language. Yeah, we talked about it in the Fugate interview, but um, there are medical conditions like ectopic pregnancies right. where if the pregnancy uh, gets too far along, it will kill the mother. But then the question at that point is, do you then poison and burn the baby inside and cut off all its limbs and right. pull it out piece by piece? Because that's what an abortion is once it mm -hmm. reaches a certain size. Um, the answer to that has to be no. That's inhumane. That's mm -hmm. barbaric. Mm -hmm. So um, the the people that I listen to at least say, yes, there are situations where you cannot allow a pregnancy to continue on. In that case, it's appropriate to take the baby out. If, if it can be delivered, deliver early. We are advancing medical technology all the time to keep uh, younger and younger uh, mm -hmm. babies alive. Uh, but even if it results in a tragic death, it's because it just couldn't be. It's not because we're actively killing right. a child. So we we are against the active. I, w I wish this statement had been, we are against the, the active ending of a life and advocate in all times to remove uh, the baby humanely, mm -hmm. um, even if it cannot live on its own. I think that is the least morally reprehensible situation to be in. And it's just so odd to me that, I mean, it seems to me that they present this impossible si situation where these two lives are at odds and you have to choose one. And I, I think the faithful position is to not even acknowledge that that's a scenario mm -hmm. and just to say, we choose both. Mm -hmm. And this is these are the ways that that, that looks, you right. know. And here are the countries that practice it, and look at their maternal mortality rates. And right. here are women who've gone through that and tell the stories. And instead, people would rather go crazy and imagine worst case scenarios and and judge people who who would have something to say, uh, talking about values and what people should do. Hey, it's a hard situation; you can't judge anybody. Meanwhile, the United States of America has been aborting a million children a year ever mm -hmm. since Roe v. Wade was passed. Mm -hmm. And so we, we're, we're whistling past the graveyard mm -hmm. on this. And I appreciate the strong stance. I, I do just, too. I hope, I hope it gets stronger, and mm -hmm. I hope that we tell the stories of, of women and children that come out on the other side of this not taking a worldly ethic, but, yeah. but being faithful through it. So, Yeah. I think... I think one of the sobering moments that really made it um, impossible for me to remain in the UMC was when I read a statement that was released after the the overturning of Roe v. Wade by, by the bishops, by the president of the bishops. I think he he wrote it with somewhat of a representative voice, but it yeah. was signed by him, and um, and I remember reading it and being so disturbed to read all the quotations from the UM Book of Discipline, right regarding their stance on abortion, and it was so one-sided. Right. And so I went to the Book of Discipline and read the actual thing and realized, okay, they they tried to um, to straddle the fence here and kind of have their cake and eat it too yeah. and say both, and he is selecting all the portions right. that should never have been in there and are just sad. I, and, I, and I felt sick to my stomach to know that I was a part of an organization that had left so much room uh, for abortion. Yeah. And... Uh, so I do want to say, and not not in the interest necessarily of talking down about the UMC, but of saying I'm really grateful to be a a, a part. Uh, there's while I have questions about some of this, there's nothing that's reprehensible to me. Yeah, yeah. yeah. If you um if you want to see that letter that was written on behalf of the Council of Bishops uh, that that misrepresented the position on abortion from the United Methodist Church and of course a biblical position, right. I've got a link to that in my Substack article. So. I'll try and put the link to that 
in the show notes here. All right, let's go on to the next one. This is point four, still paragraph 202. So all of these, the rest is going to be in paragraph 202. We believe that all should have the right to work in safe conditions with fair compensation and free of grinding toil or exploitation by others. We respect the right of workers to engage in collective bargaining to protect their welfare. We pray that all should be allowed to freely follow their vocations, especially those who work on the frontiers of truth and knowledge and those who may enrich the lives of others with beauty and joy. We acknowledge that science and technology are gifts of God intended to improve human life, and we encourage dialogue between faith and science as mutual witnesses to God's creative power. All right, so we're not anti-science. Let it be known. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, we'll come back to some of this, but here's the scriptural citations. Deuteronomy 5, 12 through 14 says, Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. You or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your ox or your donkey or any of your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates that your male servant and your female servant may rest as well as you. So, of course, that one, I doubt they're trying to reinstitute the Sabbath in the way that the Hebrews observed it. I'm sure they're just making the case, hey, you shouldn't be rest. Uh, people need rest. Yeah, people need rest. You shouldn't be working. an issue of justice. Everybody needs rest. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so back to the citations. Luke 10, 7 through something. It might just be 7. No, it's just 7. And remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide for the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. That's Jesus' instructions to the disciples when they're going house to house ministering. Uh, I'm not sure what it has to do with this particular... I think they're just playing off of the phrase, the laborer deserves his wages. Oh, that feels kind of like proofs texting to me, but you know, whatever. Okay, sure. So whether you eat or drink, this is 1 Corinthians 10, 31, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. How's that one connected? I think it's uh, the language where they talked about uh, people being freely allowed to freely follow their vacations, especially those who work on the frontiers of truth and knowledge and those who may enrich the lives of others with beauty and joy. So whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do it, do it for to God's the glory, glory of God. Yeah, okay. there's a lot of vocations out there that can do things for God's glory that are beautiful and, and okay. testify to the truth. And then 1 Timothy 5.18 Quote, for the scripture says, quote, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain and the laborer deserves his wages. Yeah, that was the first one that I thought of. So we're all for fair pay. Uh, of course, in a political sense, I'm familiar with people like Thomas Sowell, uh, economists, and Milton Friedman, of course, who talks about um, whenever you have uh, minimum wage laws that actually disproportionately hurts minorities and people who are struggling to get employed. So I, I just worry about the the policy ramifications of things like this, where with good intentions, we can insist on mm-hmm. new policy or, or law that is meant to give dignity to others, but actually excludes them mm-hmm. from the workforce. So I appreciate that there's no language of we, we want for to advance different legislative stuff in Washington, D.C. But even so, I... Hmm. Yeah, I guess what what's the desired response here? Is it just for employers in GMC churches to resolve to pay their employees fairly? No, I I mean I imagine that there this is directed 
this definitely can be uh, interpreted with kind of a universal lens. Um, I think it begs some interesting questions when you think about like all the strikes that have been happening in the U.S. lately. Uh, that uh, I think organized most, labor, yeah, and it does yeah. talk about organized right. labor in here. Uh, but also, if you if you think about the reality that so much of uh, consumption in the United States depends on imports from other countries where these things probably aren't occurring. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. I in reading in all all of these uh, stances that the GMC has taken, I didn't really see that. I see them trying to toe the line and not get explicit about the means by which we're going to do this. Ah. I don't see them ever getting clear that it's going to be through social action or through uh, trying to work through politi- political uh, government processes. I think they leave that to be answered, which I think is kind of wise. Um, or I don't. I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, I think it's wise. I don't know. I mean, I guess I, I think it would be wise. I, I, what I say in my article is I, I think it would be wise just not even to have a social witness section unless you're willing to kick people out who don't agree with you on it, you know. Mm-hmm. But, um, yeah, if you're going to have a social witness section being vague about how it is that individual global Methodists should implement it in their lives might be might be wise, might be frustrating. What's really... I, this is kind of an aside, but it is the whole conversation. You know, in the beginning, they said that the Methodist tradition was the first to create um, social, uh, the social creed, the social creator, yeah. and um, and I kind of thought, what about the the magisterium of the Roman Catholic Church? Mm-hmm. Um, I I don't know how long they've been making public statements, but they have all kinds of stances on social issues. Like Roman Catholics are very well known for their stance on abortion. Yeah, Uh, and I'm pretty sure they've been at it for a while. And so I I kind of just raised an eyebrow when I read that and thought, first denomination in the world, I I would be surprised if the Roman Catholics didn't beat us on that. The whole reason why I say that um, is because it's fascinating to me on on a whole host of levels. Like in the UMC. The Book of Discipline got larger and larger in part because of the growing segment of the discipline devoted to social-related mm. questions and taking stances on things and trying to fit in all of the uh, nuances of the discussions. And so in some ways, I feel like this is opening a door for potential, you know, the, the bragging rights right now for the GMC is, look at this slim discipline compared yeah, to the UMC. pages right. versus the Book of Discipline, which but, is 800-some. But I think the nature, if you look at the magisterium, which is always having to release new... Uh, binding statements about mm-hmm. what it means to be a Roman Catholic and what you believe, many of which I think are great, you know, and, and Christians should feel bound by. Uh, it's not hard to imagine that we're going to end up in a similar scenario where um, we end up having to expand more and more, or that's going to be the constant tug is like, hey, you guys made a statement about this. Why wouldn't you make a statement about this? Mm-hmm. And okay, you acknowledge this reality, but what about this nuance? Um, how does that not re- kind of just. Um, snowball. So I don't know. I'm, I'm interested to see how this is going to develop. And right. it feels like it's, and it's also fascinating to me uh, because I think you and I are more prone to say, we need, we need some clarity on uh, theological doctrines that are, how do I put it, more in-house, you mm-hmm. know, like uh, something close to a confessional statement or something like that. Yeah. But it seems like early on, we're, we're, we're quicker to make these kinds of statements social statements and yeah. make our stance clear on that, which you would think would have to be binding in some sense if you're going to be a GMC person, but we haven't been as clear on certain theological doctrinal things. So I don't know. I'm just fitting that in where it... Yeah. Yeah. I don't I don't know that I have much to, to add to that, but yeah, you're right. It, it says something when you're willing to be particular versus when you want to stay vague. 
Yeah. So, all right, well, let's go on to the next one. Uh, point five, I think it's your turn to read. We believe that God has called us to share his concern for the poor and to alleviate the conditions and policies which have produced vast disparities in wealth and resources, both among individuals and nations giving rise to poverty. We are called to improve the quality of life and opportunities for all God's people as we share the good news to the poor and freedom for the oppressed. First scriptures from Leviticus 19, verses 9 through 10. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge, neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. And you shall not strip your vineyard bare, neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. And then Matthew 25, verses 37 through 40. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of my brothers, you did it to me. Go ahead. Uh, in terms of the scriptures and how well they match up with what's being said uh, in our statement, um, you know, the first of Leviticus is clearly caring for the poor and the sojourner. Uh, it's kind of an is issue of justice. Um, and then with Matthew, it's similarly clothing, uh, feeding, um, tending to the sick. So... I think I think it it works well. It doesn't feel like an abuse or or anything of the scriptures. If I if I did have any questions, it would be with some of the language in the the statement itself. Yeah, the statement I, I find. So there are two things that I'm wanting to pick on. One is this narrative that disparity in wealth causes poverty. The undergirding social the uh, fiscal theory here monetary theory is that there's a limited amount of goods and resources so that when hoarding occurs in one place that necessarily takes from others and that's not how money works uh, there is such a thing as wealth creation uh, we've created more wealth in this world than anyone ever thought was possible and the poor of our country live comparatively to people of all cultures up till 150 years ago essentially is royalty. You know, the, the, when you look at uh, <laughs> the poor in the West, you know, there are still places of abject poverty today, but uh, until the COVID restrictions, they were every year, millions of people were coming out of poverty because of um, unchecked capitalism. So I hear this as an anti-capitalist framework that shames the rich for hoarding the, the thing that I think those two scriptures point to, uh, for a lot of liberals, they would look at that and they would say, well, we need to have um, laws that redistribute. We need to take from the rich and redistribute to the poor. And I, I fundamentally disagree with that, one, because I don't think it works. But two, I think coerced good things don't count for anything. And so I, if, I think these make the case for what would be called noblesse oblige, where when you are a believer— and you have been blessed with material or uh, other goods, then it is your moral obligation to share those things freely you've received, freely give. Uh, I wish that was in here. Maybe it is. I think there are probably more citations. But, yeah, there are. There are two more. Okay, we'll read them. Well, let's go ahead and, and, and read them then. Um, Luke 6, 20 through 25 
and he lifted up his eyes on his disciples, this is talking about Jesus, and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. So that was the Sermon on the Plain in Luke 6. Uh, James 2, verses 1 through 5 says, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and you say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there, or sit down at my feet. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those that are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? I'll confess, James does have some straight-up anti-capitalist sympathies or anti-rich, you know. Is it not the rich who are taking you to courts, you know? Um, and I'm all about we should show no partiality based on class, uh, absolutely. I just, I reject the, the anti-capitalist notion uh, undergirding all of that, but that's all that I would reject. I think care and concern for the poor, you cannot be a Christian if you don't have care and concern for the poor. That's just not a negotiable sure. part of faith. Sure. What else is to be said? Well, I guess, could you go back? Uh, I need to see the language. I was going to point out that the sentence in which you you drew that, I think I think you interpreted the sentence uh logically, if not in how they intended it. But I think it's such a long sentence uh, with a lot of grammatical things going on that it's actually not totally clear to me what the what gives rise to the poverty. I think the, you know, because it, it says it shares concern for the poor and to alleviate the conditions and policies which have produced the vast disparities in wealth and resources giving rise to poverty. So, you can, I think you can read that grammatically is what's give, giving rise to poverty is in reference to the disparities in wealth or to the also to the policies and conditions which have produced the vast disparities. So I don't know. I'm just, I don't, I'm not trying to be Ooh, tedious. So or anything. no, if, you, if you're a libertarian, then you go, yes, all uh, uh, regulation in business mm -hmm. necessarily benefits big business and it hurts competition mm -hmm. with smaller businesses. Get rid of all regulation. This is a libertarian social witness, guys. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know uh, if that's the point you were trying to make, but I not mean, necessarily. You, you could just, read it in that, that I, sense. I think you could, and I think I'm, but, but it, it seems to be placing the headwaters at conditions and policies which produce the situations. And so that does seem to suggest governmental, you know, stuff. It does. And it also works against a notion that poverty in any sense correlates with individual decisions. It's, it's all, uh, or a majority, a, a result of, um, systems, uh, government policies, big, big, uh, kind of a progressive notion of the world. There are no individuals, there well, are groups. it could, but, but if you pay attention to the word conditions, that's so broad. Yeah. The, the conditions that give rise to poverty, I mean, there's a lot of those individual decisions, social realities that have nothing to do with government. And yeah. so, yeah. 
I, I think that that sentence is long enough with enough going on. Anyone can read it how they want. Oh, what a blessing. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, let's go on to the next one. This is point six. I think it's my turn to read. Is it? I don't, yeah. Okay, yes. I'll take it. We believe that all have been summoned to care for the earth as our common home, stewarding its resources, sharing in its bounty, and exercising responsible and sustainable consumption so that there is enough for all. So here's our environmental ecological statement. Uh, we, have, we have three citations. Um, Genesis 2.15 says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. The notion there being that um, God gave us responsibility not to screw this place up. Yeah, and that w like working and keeping is kind of stewarding. Oh, okay, okay. Uh, Psalm twenty four one says, "The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof; the world and those who dwell therein." Okay, so it's not ours; mm -hmm. it's His. Yeah. So we need to not screw it up. Mm -hmm. Okay, and then Leviticus twenty six thirty four through thirty five. Then the land shall enjoy its Sabbaths as long as it lies desolate. While you are in your enemy's land, then the land shall rest and enjoy its Sabbaths. As long as it lies desolate, it shall have rest, the rest that it did not have on your Sabbaths when you were dwelling in it. So that kind of is referring to the year, every seventh year they were supposed to, I guess they called it a Sabbath year, mm -hmm. where you rested the land and you weren't supposed to to sow any seed. You were supposed to let it get its nutrients back. Mm -hmm. uh, they did not do that, which is part of the explanation for why it was that they went into captivity for a bit. And here he, the Lord is saying, I I'll give it a rest since you didn't. Mm -hmm. uh, but the notion being that we need to um, give the land a rest, that we need mm -hmm. to not use it all for our short-term gains such that everything is ruined. Right. So is there anything theologically wrong with this? No, I mean, I think some of your certain kinds of conservatives might look at this with some some concern about environmentalism and what this could yeah. imply about how we're going to approach environmentalism, but um, you know, I think I think we should all be able to agree that we're supposed to steward God's creation well, and I I don't see anything problematic about this. Yeah, if the if the posture we take is if anything sounds anything like in the United Methodist Church, we can't do it, right. then that kind of participates in the same excesses of the Protestant Reformation that just threw out anything that sounded like the Roman Catholic right. Church. There needs to be the discernment to approach each individual thing and say, okay, is this mm -hmm. a problem, or was it just connected to something else that was a problem? Right. Which is hard to do, but, I mean, we're supposed to be adults with critical thinking skills, and mm -hmm. you, you can't throw out the baby with the bathwater. Right. And same point serves for political associations. Just because you might associate some of this language or care for the environment with some sort of leftist person doesn't mean that any care for the environment is coming from a leftist position. Yeah. You know, I've had people walk up to me after I preached straight out of the Bible and said, you sounded like a Democrat up there, and I thought... Well, that's really weird because <laughs> I was just talking about loving each other and taking care of each other. I, uh -huh. I didn't mean to imply some sort of socialism or something. Right. So I think sometimes we just uh, feel a little trigger happy. But um, yeah, I like how they put the last point. I'm feeling like maybe I'm not doing a good job. People have not told me that. So I guess. I well, and maybe maybe I, I think I'm clearer than I am and I left some sort of door open. But yeah, it was really weird. Catherine was standing next to me. It was in shaking the, the, the hands after worship. And mm -hmm. someone said, well, you sound like a Democrat. And we were both like, what? <laughs> uh, no, we're not. <laughs> Do you know if they were a Democrat? Uh, 
I'm still a little bit confused about that. Because only the Democrats talk about loving people. Only Democrat. Anyway, well, and that's we my, shouldn't go into that. I'm yeah, sorry. yeah, yeah. Anyways, it was, it was curious. All right, it's your turn. This is point seven. We believe that human sexuality is a gift of God that is to be affirmed as it is exercised within the legal and spiritual covenant of a loving and monogamous marriage between one man and one woman. Uh, the first quote, it doesn't appear on the screen I'm looking at. Yeah, it does. It's Matthew 19, 3 through 9. Oh, it's just so a longer it, quote. It, yeah, it goes on. Yeah, it goes on to the other yeah. side. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. They said to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? He said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality and marries another, commits adultery. And then the next one was from Exodus 20, verse 14. You shall not commit adultery. I love this. I actually think they did a great job here. Yeah, they, um, well, so I wish that they had been more explicit around um, divorce. So they, they use the quote that talks explicitly about divorce, but they don't talk about it all in the actual point seven yes. social witness. So they, they depend on people actually reading their Bibles to have a biblical perspective on divorce, which if we're just going to direct people into their Bibles, let's not have this. Let's just have people read their Bibles. Mm-hmm. But if we're going to make social witness statements based on what's in the Bible, how about something clear about divorce? Namely, right. it's bad. You shouldn't do it. Yeah, I'd be curious if there's any other location in the discipline where they are more, because it seems clear to me that what they're doing here <clears throat> in terms of the, the actual language of the statement is they are affirming and not denying anything. They're not saying, you know, marriage is not this. They're only talking about what marriage is. Mm-hmm. And um, so it's it's just a pure affirmation. And then they use scriptures that aren't purely affirm, affirm, you know. So I, yes, I agree with you. I would hope that somewhere they're more clear about, and I think they do get into detail about various sexual sins in some other locations. Okay, okay. Um, there's another page of citations here. Okay, here it is. This is oh, it's just Ephesians chapter five verses twenty-two through thirty-three. This is, uh, again, still located in this, this one sentence on the only case in which sexuality is okay. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, or the husband, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit and everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Quote, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. 
This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each of each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. So this is also a way of sneaking it. So the previous one snuck in a biblical view on divorce. This one could be read to be sneaking in a biblical view on complementarianism, which I think most people coming out of the UMC are not on board with complementarianism. They're, they're egalitarians. If, if you don't know, the Daniel knows. Uh, egalitarianism says just because you're a man or a woman doesn't mean anything about your marriage. You do things however you want. You're equal in all the ways. Um, uh, complementarianism says you're equally made in God's image. You're of equal uh, nobility and dignity. However, the, the virtue of being a male or a female does arbitrarily dictate things about your role in the household and in the marriage and in parenting. And so it goes through some of these particulars here in Ephesians, which a lot of people would not like. Um, anything else to be said? Oh, yeah, there's probably a lot to be said about this is just an affirmative statement on sexuality. And then... <clears throat> yeah, and I, I very much doubt that this was put in there with any intention to support uh, complementarianism. I, I would suspect that... Um, they, they were just trying to highlight uh, the loving relationship that is ex exclusive between a man and a woman and the relationship to the church. Oh, sure. Um, <clears throat> and the only thing that jumps up, out to me is the word legal, uh, the legal and spiritual covenant. I don't think there's anything big going on there. I'm just it, it kind of, okay, are, are, are we talking about legal in this the sense of in the side of the, the state, um, or are you talking about just uh, that this isn't just a spiritual covenant in, in some sense within the church. It has like a legal kind of binding effect. Yeah, so. that's a good thing to pick on because, yeah, this is what a lot of clergy are in the position of doing right now is, okay, whatever is in the law books is one thing, but then mm -hmm. there's marriage in God's eyes, and so we're not going to perform some marriages, legal mm -hmm. marriages, because of what the state says. And I think this is kind of normative in saying like, what is legal should reflect what what is also going on in God's eyes. Maybe. Yeah, it could. And but I and I'm thinking, how would someone who lives in some other cultures and societies with different laws read this? Right. You know, because as we know about, like our African brothers and sisters, for instance, they have some strong laws about what sexual actions are permitted. Mm -hmm. I act like I know a lot. I've heard. Yeah. Uh, so I don't know. I just just. Curious to me what implications that could yeah, have. Yeah, Christian nationalism is uh, is an undergirding question under all this. What To what degree should the state reflect Christian mm -hmm. values and virtues? I don't think it comes anywhere close to, to answering no, that. No, and my assumption is that the people who put this together and the people leading the GMC are going to do, as much as they are signaling about sexism and racism, I yeah. think they have been and will continue to, to increasingly signal about not being Christian nationalists. Yeah, right. Yeah, they don't want to be... They don't want to be associated with that. No, under no, 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 yeah. no. We'll leave that to the Reformed Christians. 